one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So, uh, guys, what does your podcast studio look like today? I mean, I don't want to brag, but I think I have a pretty good setup here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have. I've got like the uh, the blankets. I'm in a closet with a carpet. <laughs> I've got a sort of mishmash of blankets and scarves hanging on the wall mm. and like a hair wrap towel over a standing Ooh. desk. Um, it sounds it's, like it's Stevie really professional. Very nice. And when you're done using it for podcasts, your kids can use it as a fort. Oh. Or they can make a podcast. Right. We're we're all sort of inspired by the pictures that are occasionally tweeted by NPR reporters out in the field, like huddling under a blanket fort to record their intros and outros. And Ben and I were inspired by a picture of Ari Shapiro recording under the covers uh, a week or two ago. And so we are recording from the bed. It's a John and Yoko bed-in situation. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, I am not recording inside a closet. I don't like going into closets, but I am recording in my basement <laughs> with lots of blankets that I didn't know I owned spread all over the place. So there we are. It's cozy. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the social distancing edition. I'm Shane Harris, uh, podcasting from the Bloomingdale Studios of Lawfare. I guess we have now a Capitol Hill studio and <laughs> the John and Yoko I, studio. I think we're as calling well. this the virtual jungle studio. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. The jungle studio has grown vines and is spread out. It's uncontrolled. Uh, no surprise to listeners, we are at home, as I'm sure many of you guys are too. So wherever you are joining us, uh, hopefully you've been waiting for Wednesday. We've been very, I think, eagerly anticipating how we thought this was going to work. And, you know, I don't know, so far, I don't know if I would do this every week, but it feels okay. It, it feels okay. We're making it's it work. definitely suboptimal. I think that I don't know. I One of the consequences of not being in an office and engaging in random chit chat with people is you have more time in your own head and more time for reflection. And we've all been reflecting a lot on what human connection means to us. Yeah. So I think that makes moments like this little recording session that much more meaningful. Well, I agree. And we're going to talk about that uh, in the podcast. Uh, this week, much of normal life has ground to a halt. We're going to reflect on the state of the pandemic and how it's affecting all of us. What exactly happened to a White House office that was set up to respond to pandemics? And Congress kicks the can on an all-important surveillance law until the end of May. So, Tammy, kind of pick up from from where you were just talking. Actually, I want I'll, we're going to go around the uh, the virtual room here and try and give uh, just a sense of where we are as a country and the the issues that are resonating for each of us in our various areas of the world that we follow. But we also want to take a little bit of time just to talk about how things are with us in our homes and what our personal thinking is. So, Tammy, why don't you? start us off. Okay, so I I think personally yeah, it's weird. I think it's weird in the way that it's weird for everyone being distant and trying to figure out how to connect. I read one essay this past week that really really uh struck a chord with me by and now unfortunately I I can't pull it up right at the moment, but if I can, we'll put it on the show page by the editor of an LGBTQ uh, magazine who was, you know, sort of thinking through the AIDS crisis and the way that affected the gay community and what lessons that has for the time of coronavirus. And she was saying, you know, one of the ways in which the gay community responded to AIDS, to everyone's fear of catching this killer disease, was by using the power of touch doing kiss-ins, you know, as part of the AIDS awareness activism at the time. And she said, 
one of the really horrible things about this virus is that because it's so contagious and because we are all ordered to distance ourselves from one another, it's taken away the power of touch. And that, I mean, that's devastating, but I also think it's really true. And it it emphasizes to me how important it is within our little nuclear units where, you know, we are still engaging with one another on an interpersonal level to to hug and, and to be physically in contact where we can do that safely. So that's like my personal reflection. I think my broader kind of national security foreign policy reflection is that this is going to change global politics in ways we cannot even foresee yet. You know, I mentioned last week, what's it doing to the globalized economy and the global supply chain, but relationships between nations who helps whom with what, in what manner, to what extent can we overcome collective action problems to save the global economy? You know, and and then whenever you have a crisis of this magnitude globally, it creates opportunities for the United States and other major powers to reorient their whole foreign policy approach. And you know, what world do we want to live in? What opportunity is there for the United States to reorient its way of engaging in the world? So those are some of the big, big questions that I think we'll be working our way through in the weeks and months to come. Uh, Okay, Ben. You know, I, uh, first of all, I I had something uh, of a similar reaction, but something of the opposite reaction too, which is, you know, I imagine like the last time there was a need for this kind of social isolation to prevent the spread of disease. And what is the huge difference between now and then is two things. One is higher quality medical care. You know, to have a healthcare system to be overwhelmed is itself. Uh, an amazing creature of modern life. But the other one is technologies of connectivity uh, that allow, at a trivial level, people to be in touch by text and by FaceTime and by Skype and by uh, Zoom and a lot of normal life to continue in admittedly non-normal form, at least for certain groups of people, and also allow us to check in on one another in a fashion that I think would have been unthinkable only relatively recently, and at another level facilitates things like our ability to do this podcast. If you had imagined that this had happened only 10 years ago, the technology to do something like what we're doing right now would have been impossible. Yesterday, I attended a conference that was supposed to be an in-person conference. Uh, Tammy uh, was part of it, too. It was supposed to be an in-person conference. It took place uh, over Zoom uh, with people from around the world. And uh, there were 75 people on that Zoom call for six hours over the course of the day. And so from everything from being able to check on one another at the most personal level to being able to bring you rational security, not quite as normal, but almost as normal, to being able to go to conferences, I'm kind of amazed at the impact of technology in mitigating the degree of isolation that social distancing requires. So Susan, tell us what you're thinking. Yeah, so uh, obviously the primary impact of this sort of on us in our in our personal lives is as parents of small children. Um, so like lots of people across this country and across the world right now, um, we are adjusting to improvisational homeschooling um, of small children, which is a little bit of a challenge. Um, and then also sort of figuring out, you know, you know, we're in a we're in a fortunate situation, and um, you know, how do we help support our community? What are our obligations to to make sure you know people who who work for us, childcare. 
uh, support that kind of stuff that, that people continue to be safe. What we've decided to do is sort of just uh, form a closed loop, uh, you know, within our family and are trying to kind of take shifts on getting work done and getting uh, getting childcare obligations done. I keep sort of playing over and over in my head the rational security, I think from two weeks ago, maybe it was three weeks ago, in which Ben mentioned, well, you know, there's this coronavirus thing, you know, we should probably be pretty concerned about it. And I was like, yeah, I, it sounds bad, but like the flu is bad too, right? And so the reality of this is being sort of intensely visited on us right now. You know, like a, it's also sort of difficult to to track the messaging coming out of the White House. You know, we're all sort of working together to flatten the curve. We've seen this really, really abrupt shift in tone, both from the White House itself, the president himself, and kind of the Fox News media ecosystem. Um, we're going to find out in the coming weeks you know, how 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 much sort of those efforts are going to work and, and how effective and, and how far behind we are. So a little bit, it feels like kind of hunkered down and, and waiting for the storm to hit. And that especially feels true, like in this little closet with blankets over our head. Um, you know, but look, uh, above all, you know, I'm I'm really sort of trying to stay stay focused on on our kids and um, and and sort of keeping in mind that they are not going to remember the day to day of this uh, years from now, but they are going to remember how it felt, uh, sort of you know the, the the vibe, whether or not adults were uh, were scared and worried, or whether or not we were happy and upbeat. Um, so you know, we're we're really trying to keep that uh, sort of the the center of our focus. Um, and then, of course, you know, a, a lot of this is happening outside all of our areas of expertise. So obviously, there are tremendous national security implications. There are also huge economic implications. There are global health implications. And so also sort of trying to figure out you know, who are the experts, who are the voices to be listening to and to be understanding what is happening in, in those parts of the world so that I can understand in sort of in my own sphere of national security law, how exactly all these pieces fit together, because all of these disciplines really are intensely connected right now and, and sort of trying to get a good feedback loop of different areas of expertise communicating and, and reinforcing with one another as we try and figure out like what exactly is the path through this. I was thinking last night, uh, which actually happened to be uh, the, my 21st anniversary in journalism, which is St. Patrick's Day. Um, so uh, about the different crises that I've covered or, or covered sort of big tangents off of them. Uh, so 9-11, the Iraq War, the anthrax attacks, Hurricane Katrina. I mean, just kind of going through the list. And, and one of the things that always struck me and I'm sure it struck lots of people because it was one of the themes of conversation around, particularly around the wars, was that these were impacting on very small segments of society. And that after 9-11, there wasn't this kind of collective sense of a burden that was going to have to be shared by everyone. I mean, I think initially it certainly felt this way, but as as time wore on, you know, we realized that the job of combating terrorism or sending people off to war was not going to be something that was shared broadly among a society. And there was you know, debates about, well, should we be raising taxes while we're going off to war? And this has never happened before. There was no sense of social, broad social cost. That is absolutely what's at play in this crisis. And so thinking about this as, as a reporter, I've kind of spent 21 years kind of waiting for when is that moment going to actually come? Because I've written about so many just disastrous and scary things that never seem to sort of bring all of the chickens home to roost at one time. And that feels like it's here now. And so that's very much shaping and informing the way that I think about how to begin even reporting about this. And to be clear, like it's not even clear where my expertise intersects with this story so far. Frankly, it has not. And I've just been sort of pitching in and volunteering on story on other stories and kind of almost general reporting where it's needed at the paper. It's not clear what the intelligence angle is on something like this. And then just on a personal level, I think, you know, as a reporter, I often I think that I use reporting sometimes as a way to 
deflect any kind of personal emotion from, especially from things that scare me. Uh, I can just sort of put my head down and burrow into the job and go do it uh, and distract myself that way. Uh, that's not been easy in this case. And I've been trying to, in some ways, turn off my inquisitive, imaginative mind that seems to like really good at spinning out what the ripple effects of something might be, because they just seem terrifying, frankly, and, and it's something like maybe I don't want to spend my time doing because I'll drive myself nuts. Um, but, you know, I'm, I, I go back to something Tammy said at the beginning, the, the foreign policy and the global security dimensions of this, I just, they're, they're at, right now they feel unfathomable, but I think that they are going to just be profound. Uh, and I feel like for, especially for like the things that the four of us talk about, we're not going to even know maybe what that conversation really feels like for a few weeks yet. Do you guys feel that way too? I do, Shane. I, I also feel like you just raised a really interesting challenge, which is, you know, how do we balance between imagining and dealing with the immediate concrete problem-solving challenges that are right in front of us? And I think that's something that each of us and probably each individual out there in the world is going through right now. Like, how do I keep my toddler occupied for the next 20 minutes? How do I keep my high school junior learning physics? You know, how do I uh, try to flatten the curve so that the healthcare system can manage the flow? But simultaneously, to sort of imagine if you're in a policymaking role, you have to imagine what's the worst that could happen and how do we mitigate against that. But also, in the middle of a crisis, the best policymaking systems and policymaking teams are also using their imagination to say, what opportunities emerge from this? What changes do we want to make to make a different world on the other side of this. And if we don't start imagining that stuff now, then we miss the opportunity for change or the window for change. And there will be actors out there in the world who are going to seize the moment and try and shift the narrative. Um, we see the Chinese doing it in some very small ways right now, trying to shift the, the PR or the international messaging kind of public diplomacy narrative. And, you know, I, so I think it's imperative that as focused as we are in immediate problem solving, we don't lose our imagination and our creativity, even though imagination and creativity can sometimes take us to scary places in the middle of this crisis. Ben. So I want to foot stomp a point that Shane made before, which is the relatively even distribution of the burden in this situation, which is... I I think unique in my memory, um, you know, 9-11, Shane actually sort of understates the matter. If you did not live in New York or Shanksville, Pennsylvania or the Washington area and you did not have a family member on a plane, the immediate impact of 9-11 was pretty limited for you, uh, at least until the question of who was going to serve in the various overseas uh, escapades that resulted arose. You know, the economic shock in 2009 was much more widespread, but it didn't require everybody to stay at home. And I, you know, really can't think of a prior incident in our security history that basically requires everybody in the country to shack up for an indeterminate period of time uh, in a kind of shelter-in-place situation. It reminds me a little bit of the air war in Britain, right, where people are kind of forced to be in these underground tunnels and shelters for very long periods of time. But it's not something that's a, that's a, a sort of creature of modern American security thinking. And if you think about all of our talk about terrorism and what major terrorist events, what the impacts of them would be, like being cooped up at home was not one of the scenarios that we all talked about very much, uh, although we did talk about bioterrorism. And so I think it's a, it's, a, that's a, it's a really interesting point and dynamic of the current situation. 
All right, let's uh, let's now get into some of the weeds of, of things here, uh, which we like to do. And let's talk about an aspect of this that I think we actually are pretty well situated to discuss. Listeners will no doubt have heard a lot lately about how the Trump administration uh, dissolved or disbanded. There have been different terms used for this. A office within the National Security Council, within the White House, that was responsible for monitoring potential pandemics and to some degree coordinating response on that. Uh, Tim Morrison, actually formerly of the NSC, who people will remember from the impeachment hearings, wrote an op-ed about this, actually taking issue with the idea that the office was disbanded. And he was writing that in the Post uh, and, and responding to Another op-ed in the post by the woman who used to run that office. So, Ben, let's start with you on this. Sum up what Morrison's particular argument is here, because I think people by now are familiar with the idea that there was this office. Uh, and then let's talk about you know how this thing got dismantled. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on whether you think it matters that we don't have a pandemic response unit located within the White House in the same structure or way that it was before. Well, so we don't get to answer that final question because we don't know how the structure uh, that existed before would have handled this situation. So there's a null hypothesis here that's not available to us. But I will say I thought Morrison's op-ed was uh, sort of a bit cagey. There isn't really an argument here about the facts. There was an office ceased to be an office. Uh, there is a different structure now that is designed to handle stuff than existed before. If you are a member of the prior administration or and I uh, you know or sympathetic to their viewpoint and I count myself among those people, this looks like they didn't take the problem as seriously. They dismantled uh, a, an office that had been put in place in order to manage interagency cooperation in such situations. Tim Morrison is not arguing that they didn't do those things. He's arguing that it was just part of a larger downsizing of the NSC, which was justified because of the bloat that had occurred in the NSC under the Obama administration and the centralizing in the White House of agency functions. Uh, so uh, to me, this is six of one, half a dozen of the other. There's no question that the office was dismantled. The question is whether the new structure amply performed uh, relative to the old structure. We obviously don't know the answer to that question, but what we do know is the quality of the White House's performance in this crisis, which has been dreadful. And so I think it's a bit it's a bit silly for him to say, no, it was just a reasonable downsizing of NSC staff when the result is, you know, sort of patent ineffectiveness. I think the right approach for them to be taking, but this would require a degree of introspection that this crowd is not uh, all that good at, would be saying, why has our effectiveness been so stunted and did the administrative changes that we may play any significant role in that? Tammy. So I guess I would make a couple points. Number one, Morrison's op-ed is less a defense of the NSC directorate he led and its ability to handle pandemic response and more a chiding of anyone who argues that the White House was less prepared than it needed to be, you know, and a labeling of that of playing politics with a pandemic. And, you know, so let's understand that he is really not engaging, I think, in a substantive defense of the office that he used to run, other than claiming it was good enough. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, anytime you are setting up an NSC structure, and he actually says in the op-ed, and he's right, he says the NSC is really the only place in government where there is a staff that ensures the commander in chief gets all the options he needs to make a decision and then makes sure that decision is actually implemented. And that's right. That is the role of the NSC. And so when you take three offices 
arms control and nonproliferation on the one hand, um, weapons of mass destruction, terrorism, two, and global health and biodefense, three, and you shrink them into one office and you reduce the number of staff, then that means that there are fewer people with the issue expertise in the White House to hold agencies accountable and develop good options for the president. And it means that there are fewer staff to um, just manage the day-to-day things that come up and make sure that potential crises get elevated for decisions to get made. Now, you know, if you come in and you decide that the NSC is too large and you got to cut it, you have to make a judgment about where to cut. And that judgment is going to be based on what you think is more or less important. They chose to shrink these offices. That reflects their sense of where the national security priorities are. And I think it's a very traditional, you know, Republican vision of national security that says these multilateral issues, these, quote, soft security issues like pandemics and global health, well, they're not really security issues. We should be focused on Russia and China and the Middle East. And that's where we're going to maintain staff and we're going to shrink staff on these squishy issues. That's a very traditional Republican position. That's what led to the diminution of the staff devoted to this role. And now we see the price that we pay. And so to me, the conclusion from that is a conclusion that the traditional Republican approach to international security issues is wrong and off base and out of touch with empirical reality. And I hope that Republican national security thinkers and the next Republicans who set up national security structures will make appropriate adjustments. Susan. Yeah, so I, I think this op-ed read um, pretty defensive and, and pretty unproductive. So keep in mind that Tim Morrison is someone who, you know, had testified during the impeachment hearings, um, really has sort of preserved a reputation as being kind of a reasonable civil servant, trying to do his best and, and sort of uphold his obligations and and not sort of a full-blown Trumpist. Um, you know, this article really read like a, uh, don't criticize us, how dare you, uh, how dare you blame us, and oh, we're all less safe when people play politics, you know, sort of as, as, a, as a defense, um, you know, of course, playing politics, another term for that is accountability, introspection, attempting to, to course correct, to understand what went wrong here so we can figure out how to get ourselves back on the right course. And in some sense, you know, the op-ed uh, is actually sort of self-refuting. So the reason Morrison wrote this op-ed was he was responding to a prior piece in the Washington Post by Beth Cameron, who had been the senior director for global health, security, and biodefense at the NSC under the Obama administration. And so Morrison is, is responding, saying, hey, look, I took over this office, and so I can explain why this isn't really accurate. Um, you know, the, the, this idea that we didn't prioritize it, that we weren't really prepared, this was just a, you know, a minor administrative, uh, you know, bureaucratic shuffle. And, and the reason it's self-refuting is that Beth Cameron is somebody who has a PhD in biology. That's her background. That's her expertise. Tim Morrison is someone who is an expert in nuclear proliferation. And so the mere fact that he is now in charge of this office, in charge of these efforts, itself demonstrates that they are not putting subject matter experts in charge. They are not prioritizing those decisions. Uh, they are not pri- prioritizing these forms of crises. And, and that's, that's the whole criticism right there. And so, you know, this op-ed, which is sort of designed to say, hey, hey, look, don't blame us. Um, you know, I, I do think it misses the mark. The other thing to keep in mind is one of the people who was sort of pushed out whenever John Bolton came in as national security advisor was Tom Bossert, who was the Homeland Security Advisor uh, for President Trump in the early part of his administration. Tom Bossert has been one of the most vocal, loud critics, uh, not just of the administration's lack of response, but of sort of, you know, the United States generally being insufficiently prepared to respond to this to this pandemic. Reportedly, Bossert has been trying to get through to the White House himself, trying to to personally make calls, trying to get them to take this more seriously. And so, you know, back to sort of Ben's original point, we can't know the counterfactual world and if this other system uh, would have been better prepared or or would have handled it better. But we can know that the system that these people voluntarily put in place, that the Trump administration voluntarily put in place, has been catastrophically inept 
really from from the very beginning. And so now we are all in a position of trying to play catch up, which is the the last place you want to be in a moment like this. And, and just to build on that, I mean, I've actually been impressed by the way that Tom Bossert you know, who is somebody who, when he was in the White House, obviously kind of was, you know, as people do, was going the party line and probably, I think a lot of people maybe even harbored some, some resentments against him while he was there, but has been a, a voice of kind of nonpartisan reason and alarm and urgency. And I wonder, I mean, we can, maybe we can't know this, but maybe I'll just I'll toss this up for anybody who wants to take a swing at it. There has been a remarkable shift in the way that the White House is treating its response to this. Just in the past couple of days, I mean, I've noticed with colleagues, the president is tonally different in these press conferences. He is more sober. There's less bombast. And I wonder, you know, whether it's it's possibly like messages like this getting through to him, possibly from people on on the outside, I'm sure on the inside as well. But, you know, it's kind of there. Everyone seems to be speaking with a single voice on this. Now, regardless of whether you think the office should or shouldn't have not been dismantled, something seems to be getting through uh, to, to this president. Susan, I know you want to make a point on that. Yeah, I think this is a, a really important point. And on one hand, it is it's good and heartening to see the White House take this shift. And, and of course, we're seeing Fox News sort of follow. On the other hand, I do think we're seeing how hard it is to do this kind of cleanup because there is such a significant portion of the population that took the sort of took its its tone and uh, and took its marching orders from that original message. And now even though the president himself is coming out and saying it's not a hoax, we need to take this seriously, the fact that he already had had told millions and millions of Americans that it was a hoax, that they didn't need to take this seriously, they didn't need to be prepared, they didn't need to engage in social distancing, it's now going to be incredibly difficult even for Trump himself to, to change people's minds. And so, you know, a, a little bit, you know, the, the fact that, that Trump has now turned on a dime, I don't necessarily see know that we are going to see large portions of his base follow and, and we're all going to pay the consequences of that. I'll just add that, uh, you know, the old adage that there's nothing like a hanging to concentrate the mind comes to mind. But I very much agree with Susan that it's too little too late. This was a situation in which presidential leadership was needed, not presidential uh, following and certainly not presidential following and then lying about uh, the leadership that he provided earlier. Uh, the Washington Post today released a little video of Fox News's change in tone uh, that has the different hosts then and now. And it is an absolutely devastating video. And I don't think, I, I guess they get points for the shift insofar as they've gone from being a, a, a really significant part of the problem to being merely following uh, what was obvious a long time ago. But I, I don't think you actually get a lot of points for that. All right, let's move on to something completely different. Uh, there is national security news still happening elsewhere in the world. Uh, and on a pretty major story that um, obviously at any other time, I think would be getting a lot more attention than it is, but things being what they are, it seems to have barely registered a blip. Um, Susan, briefly over the weekend, the, there were authorities under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that actually expired. Congress has passed a stopgap to keep them going. But talk to us about what's going on here. There was a time when even a matter of hours expiration of certain sections of FISA uh, were decried as essentially poking out the eyes of the intelligence community and something we could never stomach. And here it seems like uh, it's, it's, it's has not gathered anything like the urgency and alarm that it normally would. Yeah, so look, part of that is because of the nature of the specific authorities at issue, um, that they are authorities for which uh, there's less of a concern about the ability to fill in the gaps. The systems are of a different form of complexity. So um, people sort of like to to lump all FISA together, but but they are quite different. Um, and, and of course, a little bit, um, you know, it, it's calling the intelligence community's bluff and in that in the past, you know, they, they've really tried to go in 
in on on uh, you know this notion that if they lost it even for 24 hours, it would be catastrophic. You know, whenever you can't uh, you can't get the legislation through, uh, you have to concede that, that you actually can continue to function. So I think it's a little bit of both of those things. Sort of just to, to catch us up on where we're at, um, these series of, of authorities were scheduled actually to expire in uh, back in November of 2019. Um, and at that point, because Congress was unable to reach a legislative compromise, what they did was they kicked the can until now. And they said, okay, well, we'll pass a short-term clean uh, reauthorization extension so we can figure this out when we have more time and we aren't sort of up against the cliff of the sunset. And we'll really have time to uh, debate these robustly and really be thoughtful and, and consider this. Um, fast forward to March 15th. Um, that turned out not to be the case. It turned out we were in an even worse position to debate and thoughtfully consider these issues. So on one hand, um, it's not unreasonable to say, look, let's basically just table this for now. We've got bigger fish to fry. There are closer alligators. Like We're just going to have to wait. On the other hand, we certainly would have been better off having this debate back in November. And I do think we have to ask ourselves, this reauthorization would extend, would, would temporarily extend through May 30th. Are we going to be better situated at the end of May to have this discussion and, and have this debate than we are right now? So what's happened at this point is the Senate has passed its uh, its version of this clean temporary reauthorization. Um, and we'll see what, what the House does whenever they come back from recess next week. Um, there actually had been a compromise bill that had been reached. It had the endorsement of the Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, it was sort of a compromise piece of legislation, had some modest reforms to the FISA process appeared to be something that made everything happy, everybody happy. Um, and then the president kind of scuttled it by tweet as he's wont to do, um, sort of based on his instinctual dislike of FISA, of the deep state, of believing that this was a tool that had been used against him. And so we're once again kind of back to the drawing board. And so uh, on one hand, um, it's not unreasonable to say, let's give ourselves a little bit more time. Uh, you know, that's said, we could be in an even worse position uh, at the end of May. And so the question is, like, is kicking the can really the right thing to do? Or is instead the right thing to do to say, look, we have compromised legislation. The president might be threatening to veto it, but let's pass it and call his bluff, uh, you know, because because we need to get this done. Ben, Susan mentioned the president's tweet on this. You wrote a piece in Lawfare arguing that it was the tweet that caused the FISA authorities to expire. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I first of all, I want to announce a policy change regarding my own writing about the president and his efforts to destroy FISA capabilities by tweet. When the president first did this back in 2018, with respect to 702, Susan and I wrote an outraged piece about it, calling this tweet of the president's uh, one of the most outrageous tweets of his presidency. Now I have shifted and I've decided that the appropriate tone to address these behaviors by the president is kind of wilted, uh, resigned amusement. And so I uh, tried to write this piece in the spirit of you know, man, like it's really in a kind of homage to Dan Dresner and the toddler in chief. Just it's the 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 agony of trying to manage a two year old. Look, as Susan describes, we actually got a bipartisan compromise. This was a compromise that had Jerry Nadler and Jim Jordan on it. OK, that is a rare thing in this environment. It passed with a solid bipartisan majority, having had a statement of support from Attorney General Bill Barr, Senator Mitch McConnell, that's, you know, Darth Vader, Mr. No, said he could move it through the Senate. And Richard Burr said if the Attorney General can live with it, the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee can live with it. So this was that needle-threading exercise in a pinch that Congress does so rarely, but actually, you know, happened here. And what happens? The president, the morning after the House passes it, tweets that many Senate Republicans, and by many, I think he meant one or two, 
probably Mike Lee and, and Rand Paul and nobody else, but that's just a guess, were urging him to veto this legislation that his attorney general had just endorsed. And so the result was that Mitch McConnell wouldn't move it forward under those circumstances, and maybe rightly. And so the Senate left town you know, for the weekend without passing it. And the result is that on March 15th, the Ides of March, the bill actually, the authorities in question, as Susan points out, not the most important authorities, but one of them in particular, not trivial either, did in fact expire. And I think you can say actually without fear of overstatement or error that these authorities expired because of a single presidential tweet. And I think it's worth just also remembering or, or emphasizing the words that he used in that tweet where he talks about the illegal attempted quote unquote coup of the duly elected president of the United States. I mean, this is a narrative that he has not let go of that there and, and you know, and the fact that frankly it's coming in the midst of a of a global pandemic, I think probably makes a lot of people wonder whether he's going to stop with the, you know, the deep state tweeting and put that on ice too. But I mean, this is it's 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 both sort of shocking the system, but it's perpetuating it seems to me this you know, deep, deep suspicion among his followers that there was some kind of illegal action taken against him. And there's just, there's no evidence for that. And even people in his own administration haven't found any evidence of that in their investigations. I mean, apart from the things that we've talked about with the obvious irregularities and potential possible abuses of the FISA process with regard to Carter Page. Yes, the president interrupted his busy schedule of uh, mismanaging an international pandemic in order to nurse grievance politics and conspiracy theories about FISA and the deep state, and actually in the process managed to, at least temporarily, get these FISA provisions to expire. All right. Um, why don't we move on to object lessons? We've made a policy this week to have only happy and uplifting objects. So everyone has been under strict orders to come with things that'll make you smile. Uh, Tammy, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, yes. And yesterday I was in need of a smile and uh, my friend Heather sent me a link to this tweet and this tweet and the many, many, many replies it received just warmed my heart. There have been all kinds of ways that people have been using social media to connect, but this one was on behalf of a little kid who was sad about missing her birthday party. Uh, so this is a tweet from Dr. Sarah Lodge. She writes, Twitter, I have a request. It's my daughter Rosie's fifth birthday tomorrow, but my partner has a fever, so we have to self-quarantine for two weeks. Her party is canceled and grandparents are barred. Could you send her some pics of your dogs or animals generally? to cheer her up. And people sent the most adorable things, but I think the sweetest of all was a woman who took a video of her dog and then used the magic of her computer to get the dog to say this. Hey Rosie, somebody tells me you was five talalo. Wow, that is really big. Yeah, I mean, it's only two. Look at me, me is tiny. Yeah, you must be loads bigger than me. So yeah, me want to just, just pop in and, and just say happy birthday. <laughs> and it goes on. Was the dog, um, was the, the dog have a British <laughs> accent? <laughs> yes, the dog had a British accent. And the, the mom actually replied to say, this is the very best thing that has ever happened to Rosie, Aww. a real live talking dog. She watches Pup Academy and this is real to her. Oh, that's great. So social media can make a five-year-old have I the best I would just like to refer ever. this object lesson back to my initial point about technologies of connectivity alleviating the burden of social distancing. That's great. Well, happy birthday, Rosie. Uh, ben, why don't you go next? All right. So you're going to think I'm violating the rules of uh, the uplifting thing, but I'm really not. You just got to bear with me to see why. <laughs> oh, this sounds promising. <laughs> <laughs> so I was talking to Susan before Rational Security today, and 
we were joking about how biblical this all seems, right? There's a plague and, you know, it all sounds like, you know, kind of maybe locusts are coming next and boils and frogs. What does the tweet of God have to say about this? So I don't know. I haven't consulted the tweet of God, but it did all remind me of the dialogue in the beginning of the book of Job, where God and Satan are just kind of chuckling together and say, hey, like, can we really fuck this guy up enough that he'll renounce us? And so I was thinking God and Satan are having this conversation and they're saying, let's figure out the plague that maximizes the communicative value of the choices people have made, the democratic choices people have made. Let's make the Chinese uh, regret the closeness of their political system. Let's, you know, make the Northern Italians uh, regret the chaotic nature of their political systems. Let's make the Americans really, really think about how badly they erred when they elected an incompetent, narcissistic chaos merchant as president. And then I thought, so this is a really depressing thing. And Susan reminded me that we were supposed to be uplifted by these object lessons. And I thought, yeah, but Job actually ends happily because Job gets a new wife and he gets new kids and God takes care of him. And so I just want to say, you know, yes, God and Satan are up there having their little play at at our expense. We're being tested, but we are all going to be fine. Well, from your lips to Job's ears. <laughs> You're not sure you feel that, that uplifted, Susan? I'm not sure I fully ca- I feel uplifted by the notion that maybe we'll just get new spouses and new kids after this. Although, you know, if they keep bickering, that might sound more uh, appealing in the next couple hours. Tell the truth, Susan. Haven't you thought a few times in the last 48 hours? Just, you know, send them back. Come on. <laughs> this has always been my least favorite book of We've the Bible. We've some, had some inner house social distancing as well. It's not just about the outside. <laughs> it's also about getting a little space from one another. Uh, my object lesson, I think, uh, fully conforms with the uplifting rules um, and uh, is sort of thematic as well on uh, on Shane's uh, reporting anniversary. Happy anniversary, Shane. We sure are glad that you are uh, that you chose this particular profession. Um, but mine is a Washington Post themed uh, object lesson. And that is uh, Dave Jorgensen, who runs the Washington Post TikTok account. Um, I think of myself as like pretty pretty young, pretty hip, pretty with it. Um, I am assured on a routine basis, mostly by our Lawfare Associate editors who are actually young and hip, that I am more uh, closely aligned with the olds. And uh, TikTok is something that is like completely baffling to me. I'm concerned about it as a security matter. That said, Dave Jorgensen has been posting a quarantine TikToks a thread. Um, and it is hilariously delightfully random and has brought a smile to my face each day that I have seen these absurd 30 second videos that he is uploading of himself passing the time in quarantine. Um, And so if you do not follow him and you want to uh, get a little taste of TikTok and the humorous uh, relief it can provide without having to download it on your phone, which you shouldn't, uh, you should follow him on Twitter. Susan, I'm going to associate myself with you on that. I'm often the guy in the office who, when Dave posts something on TikTok, which has been a wild social media success for the Washington Post, I'm the one looking at it going, really, we pay him for this? Uh, it's, uh, But I think he's doing it. I don't get it. <laughs> I'm like, how, seriously? He gets health insurance? Yeah, it's uh but hats off to Dave. He is making the he is making the best of uh uh of a bad situation and uh putting that Chinese data harvester to great use. My object is also from someone under quarantine. It is the former governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who while he has been locked up in his house, 
Uh, well, not locked up. He's gone for bike rides. In fact, there's a video of him taking a bike ride in front of a mural on a building that is him from his Mr. Olympics days, where he's sort of flexing, which is kind of as somebody said on Twitter, the riding by a picture of you flexing is the ultimate flex. Uh, but there is one in particular that just delights me where he does this PSA on how to wash your hands, but he's doing it on like to his little like rat dog who is sitting up on the counter, which doesn't seem <laughs> very sanitary. I think her name is Cherry. And he goes through this whole routine of how to wash your hands. And it is like mostly correct and like slightly misguided. Um, but it's just it's it's just hilarious. He's having a great time. He's trying to lift people's spirits up. He's sitting here washing his hands in front of the dog's face as if he expects the dog to do the same thing. And you look over at this thing and there's like steam rising out of this, like scalding hot water coming out of this into the sink right now. And he goes to rinse his hands off and he says something like, I do this 50 times a day. And I'm like, how do you have skin left on your hands? Which like okay, you can like you can like slow the roll a little bit, Arnold. I'm not sure fifty times, uh, but my God, he shows you how to do it, and he's following all the hand washing etiquette. Um, there's another where he's feeding a donkey and a horse that are in his house. They're don't house ask pets. Me. I guess they don't they're carry the coronavirus. Cuddly. They're very they're very cuddly. Their names are Whiskey and Lulu. <laughs> I've been watching a lot. But uh, this is just a reminder to me that if we ever if we had actually amended the Constitution to allow people who were not native U.S. citizens to run for president, uh, you know, America loves its Arnold. He, he might have had a shot at it, but he is he is there for us as the the face of public health in his post public life retirement. Um, maybe don't wash your hands 50 times. Use lotion. Uh, but anyway, you should definitely go wash your hands, hopefully not your ears, after listening to this podcast because we're at the end of it. We actually made it through a completely remote podcast, you guys. We did it. Give yourself we'll a pat on the back. We'll uh, see you know, whether all the uh, breakups in people's voices that we're hearing in the recording of it magically disappear in the, in the, in the production. <laughs> It's no magic. It's Jen Patial. <laughs> yeah, we're going to cross our fingers. And remember, one of the rules of law for podcasting while we're in this together, please do not at us with your complaints about the audio. We're doing the best that we can. Of course, Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find hygiene and sanitation tips at 50timesaday.lawfareblog.wash. Yes, that's it. That's a weird one, yes. Shane. Yes, go there. Go. <laughs> I'm, I don't know what to do with that. God, that de- that dead air. <laughs> Listen, me and Arnold and the TikTok guy are going to teach you a few things. So just you know, buckle up. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. We are still there. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out and will help other people who may be under quarantine find the new five favorite podcasts too. Our intrepid audio engineer this week is Michaela Fogel. The show is produced and edited as always by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Anthony Fauci with this acapella version of the safety dance. Good. Mm. I like it. Why acapella? You know. Now I'm gonna have it stuck in my head all day. Yeah, seriously. You you can't be playing an instrument. You don't want to touch things. I guess. And it's great. It's a great version of the song. It only lasts 20 seconds. There we go. That's what I like to hear. Now, Sophia Yan can definitely still touch her keyboard. Sophia Yan, who has been having her temperature taken probably more times than any of us. I hope she's hanging in there uh, as well as she's reporting from China. Well, on behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, we are all remote. We feel you out there. We are coming to you live from multiple locations. You are always in our hearts. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week if we're still here. Bye. <laughs>